Well, thank you for being with us online, as well as those who are here. We're glad to have you here with us this morning. Yesterday morning, I was uh, watching the news, uh, early morning news, and they announced on the news that it's been 30 years since the Persian Gulf War. 30 years, and I I had a hard time believing that because uh, I served in that war in the United States Air Force. I was there for that, and to think that was 30 years ago just kind of blew me away. And so I spent the day kind of reflecting on memories, some that were really, really good, some that were really, really horrible, and uh, I talked with my family, uh, looked at some pictures, I pulled some stuff out of the uh, um, storage room that I had from there, Uh, I dialogued with my cousin, or text back and forth with my cousin, he was over there with me during the time we shared a lot of stories and memories, Um, but one of the things that uh, I found was this jacket. And uh, this was the jacket that I wore at night in the desert. It got really cold at night, and you wouldn't expect that, but it's true. And I remember I loved this coat. I kind of lived in that coat. It was a source of comfort and warmth. But I remember a lot of times I would go to bed with that coat, and I'd throw the hood over my head, and I'd lay in my cot, and I would pray. And I was just kind of a newer Christian. I was learning about what it means to walk with God and a person there was showing me and discipling me. And so I I would lay on my cot in this coat and I would pray and I literally met God in that place. This coat was like a refuge. This coat was a shelter from the craziness that I was experiencing. It was a shelter from the storm. So it wasn't just a coat. It was this refuge that I had. And as I think about where we're at in the the series we're going through, we're going through a series called Defining Moments where we've looked at some uh, challenging parts of Scripture. We looked at Ezra chapter 7 that said that we should be people, if we want the hand of God on our life, that would learn the Word, live the Word, and pass it on. We looked last week at 2 Samuel chapter 11 from David's life where we learned that God alone is the one who determines what is evil and what is good and that we should forgive those who've wronged us as well as take our sin seriously. And these are real challenging, challenging scriptures. And I felt like this morning I wanted to do something a little bit different in this series. I wanted, instead of looking at a challenging passage, I wanted to look at a passage of comfort. I wanted to look at a passage of refuge, a passage that tells us what God is like and who he is and what we can count on in this life and the life to come. And there's few places in scripture, I think, that talk about that more than Psalm 16. And so I'm going to invite you, if you have a Bible, to either turn it on to Psalm 16 or open to Psalm 16. If you have a paper Bible, it's about almost halfway through, kind of to the left a little bit. You'll find the book of Psalms. It begins with a P. Don't let that throw you. uh, And you'll find Psalm 16 there. Also, if you're using the Church Center app, the notes and texts are right there for you. And in this passage, we are going to see that God is our refuge But he's not just our refuge, he's our refuge in life and he's our refuge in death. God is our refuge and our shelter in life and he's our refuge and our shelter in death. And so I want to dive right in. The first part I want to look at is that God is our refuge in this life. While we're living here on earth, he is a refuge. And the way I want to illustrate this is by going through these first eight verses of Psalm 16. And we're just going to kind of travel through these one by one. I'm going to give some comments as we go. But in this, we're going to see that David, who's writing this psalm, is declaring who God is. And he's declaring that God is a refuge in life and in death. So let's get started. Look at Psalm 16, verse 1. 
the first three verses. It says, protect me, God, or some versions have preserve me, God. The whole entire psalm is shaped underneath that umbrella of protect me, God. And we're going to see what he protects us from as we go through this. But God is the one who protects us. And what David is saying is that this God, this God who's a creator of the universe, this God who's always been, who's all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere-at-once God, this God is the God who will protect him. This is the one who he runs to. This is that God. And he says this is who God is by the rest of that verse where he says, For I take refuge in you. The first thing we realize is that God is our refuge. He's our refuge. God is our refuge. In other words, with all the things that are available to me, that I would run to for safety, that I'd run to for shelter, that keep me safe, David declares, above all those things that give me safety, God is my refuge. He alone is the one. There's no better place to run to than God. There's no better place to keep me safe or under the care of God and his love than God himself. No matter what I face in life, God will be this refuge. He'll be this place that I go to that will hold me and keep me. Look at verse 2. It says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now, there's something interesting here I want to point out. If you notice in your Bibles, it says, I said to the Lord, that first Lord is all caps, right? L-O-R-D, all capitalized. And then it says, you are my Lord. And then that one, the only capitalization is the, the letter L. The rest are lowercase. You see, these are two different words for God. Anytime you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bible, that's declaring God's, uh, who God is as Yahweh. That is the uh, word that the Jewish people gave to describe God. God was too holy to even say his name. And so they gave him this name, Yahweh, and they referred to him as that. And it was the bigger picture of who God is, that he's all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere at once God, God of Abraham, God of Jacob, God of Isaac. That's who God is. And that when you see the all-caps Lord, that's who he's talking about, this God. The other one, with the capital L, is Adonai. That means God is my ruler. So what he's saying here is that God, the all-powerful, all-knowing God, has become my ruler. You are the one who guides me. You are the one that calls the shots. You are my ruler. You are the one that's in charge. You are the master that directs my life. When I want to go right and you say go left, I'm going to go left. And I'm going to trust in your leading. I'm going to trust that you're worthy of being my ruler. That when I fall and submit to you and trust your guidance and leading, that my life is at peace because you're, over, you're ruling over it. Because you are in charge, I can be at peace in this world. That's what he's saying there. Let's go on to the second part of verse 2. It says, I have nothing good besides you. I have nothing good besides you. You are my greatest treasure, is what David is saying. You are our greatest treasure of everything else I have in life. My family, my kids, my friends, my job, my possession, everything else I have in life, you are the greatest. 
You are supreme above all those things. And what he's declaring is, God, you hold first place in my life and all those other blessings you give me, my family, my friends, my job, my, all those things, uh, food, shelter, as good as those things are and as great as those things are, they co- fail in comparison to you because you are in first place. You see, God gives us himself first place. We get to know God, but then he also gives us all these things that we have in second place. Our jobs, our families, our relationships, our kids, our husbands, our wives, all these things. But here's the deal. When we take a second place thing and we put it into first place thing, that's a sin. It's called idolatry. It means you're taking something God gave you and you're making a God out of it and you're kicking him out of his rightful place. When that happens, we have to repent. And what David is saying here is, I just want to clarify, God, you are the greatest of all treasures. Of anything that can be behold in our earthly lives, you stand supreme. You are the greatest that we have. Look at verse 3. This one gets a little confusing. It says, as for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. Now it's looking like David is shifting from his delight being in God to now his delight being in people. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is here is when I see God in all the people around me who are following God, it gives me great joy. When I see that God is reflected in the people who are following him, when I see people following him and how their lives are transformed, how their lives are changed, how they're trusting him, how they're forgiven, how they're made new, how they're growing in God and they're reflecting God everywhere they go, when I see that, it's a source of great joy. And we can enter into that as well, isn't it true? When we see God in each other, I think it's one of the greatest purposes of church. When we see God in each other growing and moving and changing, we get excited because it tells us that God is a God who transforms us. It tells us that God is a God who redeems us, that he is our redeemer, that we are people who have encountered a God who's rich in mercy, who's rich in grace, who's rich in boundless love, who changes us, who frees us from the guilt of our sins who frees us from the shackles of regret, who purchases us from our sinful ways and brings us out into freedom. He's our redeemer. And that gives us great joy. And we can take delight in that. Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood. I will not speak their names with my lips. If you look at what this is saying, remember we talked about taking one of those second place things and making it a first place thing, making it a God. He's saying for those people that do that, when they take a second place thing and make it a first place thing, when they make something a God that's not God himself, their sorrows will multiply. A time will come where they'll realize that's a futile way to live, that that doesn't measure up, it doesn't work. And he goes on to say, when he talks about, I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, I will not speak their names with my lips. He's not, uh, that last part where he's talking about not speaking their names with my lips, it's not like a disdain thing, like he's saying, I won't even speak their names. What he's saying is, I'm not going to call them and contact them, I'm not going to get together because I don't want to go near that path. I want to stay so far away from a path that would put anything else in place of you, God, because you are alone God. And so he's saying, 
I wouldn't want to do anything that would change the fact that you, God, are alone God. God is God alone. I will not worship other gods. Look at verse 5. It says, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. In other words, if you lay out a thousand things on the table that can satisfy my soul, God, you stand supremely above all of them. You satisfy the deepest longing of my soul. You alone can do that like no other. God, you are my soul's true satisfaction. Nothing satisfies, nothing fulfills, nothing gives life like you. You are the supreme pleasure of my soul. And as my heart is submitted to you, he goes on, you guide me in the preferred future of my soul. You guide me into the preferred future of my life because my heart is set on you, knowing you and being with you. And you satisfy and guide and lead. Look at verse 6. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is a poetic way of saying, since the best thing in all of life is God himself, which is a true statement. The best thing in all of life is God himself. God fences me into his heart so that I can receive everlasting soul comfort from him. Since the best thing in all of life is God himself, God fences me in. That's that boundary. He fences me into his heart so that I can receive everlasting soul comfort from him. You see, God is the best thing in all of life. You know, we pray for so many things. God, give me this, and God, give me that, and God, give me this, and God, give me that. We need to pray, God, give me more of you. God, give me, let me see who you really are. Because so many things we ask and pray for be like a domino that knock all those things down when we get more of God. We need God. And the more we see God, the more we know of him, the more we grow in that, we will see that he is our sole satisfaction, but he's also our source. He is the one, the place our hearts run to when we need help. He is the one that our, place, that our hearts run to when we need grace and forgiveness. He is the one that we run to when we need love and life. He is our source. He's the place we go to, the only place that gives everlasting joy and peace. I was on a mission trip in Lima, Peru, and my wife and I went down there, and we were seeking God to see if we should become missionaries, and we should um, leave uh, our world in the United States and become missionaries overseas. And we went to this church in Lima, Peru, and uh, the pastor there was a, you could just tell, he's one of these guys, he and his wife, they were like this couple that just beamed God's love. They just, being in their presence was just powerful, and we just loved hanging out with them. And, and we went to their church service. There's probably like 40 people. And, and he preached and he was speaking Spanish. So I didn't grab all of it. But I could just sense the presence of God in that place coming out from his teaching. And afterwards, we went to lunch and then we hung out with them in the afternoon. And I remember asking him uh, through this interpreter, I said, you know, would you pray? And, I, and I, I didn't tell him this, but I could tell like this guy walks with God. And I wanted him to pray for us. And I said, would you pray for us that we would know God's voice and we would know if God's telling us to do this or not, that we would know where to be guided. Would you pray that we would hear God's voice? And through this interpreter, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Dan, I'm not going to pray that you hear God's voice. I'm going to pray that you know God's heart. 
Because if you know God's heart, you'll know exactly what you're supposed to do. And not just in this instance, but in everything else that you encounter. You see, we can be a people that know God's heart because he has revealed himself to us and he's our source. And to know his heart is to know who he is and the source that he has. And he wants to fence us into that. He doesn't want us running and going stray into things of this world, into thinkings, uh, the thinkings that we see on, in earthly settings, but he wants us to stray into him, to be fenced in to him, that we wouldn't be people who wander, people who waste our lives in things of this world, but we'd be people who are brought tightly towards the heart of God. Look at verse 7 and 8. I will bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. Have you ever had one of those nights where you just can't fall asleep and you're sitting there and all these thoughts are running through your head, all the things you got to do tomorrow and the next day and the next day and you got all these feelings and stuff flying through your mind and you can't sleep at night? Am I the only one that happens to? I guess I'm the only one. No, okay, you guys are there. This is an amazing thing that God comes to us in those times and helps us. He counsels us. He's our counselor it says, I always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. This is saying that God is our counselor. He is our counselor. He is the one who helps us. And this isn't just the final add-on to the list. Like we need one more to make it complete, throw counselor up there. No, this kind of, it infects all the rest of them. There's a piece of his counseling in all of these, even the top one, that God is our refuge. When God's our refuge, it's not like we run into this empty cave that we say, and this is our refuge from the world and the battle out there. When we run into that cave, we meet God there as our counselor. And in, him, our ref, in that place of refuge, he counsels us. He proactively uh, interacts with us. There's a relational, interactive thing happening. It's an interactive relationship that God meets us and talks to us. When I was in that coat and that uh, caught in desert storm with that hood over my head, it wasn't just this refuge that was just covering me and protecting me. I met God in that place. God was there, guiding and leading and counseling and, and forgiving and, and, and giving insight and helping. And his presence was there. See, he's our counselor. He's a proactive refuge if we allow him. We cherish him because his counsel keeps us from harm. When you're in that place where God is your refuge and you're in danger of falling into sin or harm or foolish choices, God can be there as a counsel to give you a way of escape. If you place yourself in the refuge of God and you allow him to rule your life, it says he will preserve you. He will be your refuge. Look at all these things. This is how he guides us in this life in the here and now. This is how he interacts with us. This is how he relates to us as our refuge, our ruler, our treasure, our redeemer, he alone, our soul's satisfaction, our source, our counselor. This is all how he lives with us in this place called life on earth. This is who he is. And as great as those things are, there's something that comes that's even greater because he's not just our refuge in this life. He's refuge in death. He's our refuge in death. Now, God, in verses 9 to 11, addresses the greatest fear that most human beings have, and that's the fear of death. 
he addresses something that none of us will be able to escape. We have a culture, and we live in a, a time in this country, in this culture, where we can get out about, about just about of any discomfort we have. We have the resources and technology to alleviate just about any discomfort we have, but there's one thing we can't get out of, and that is death. Death is coming for every single one of us. We will all face it, and we can't change that. And there's an uncertainty with death. There's an unknowing with death. And so it can create this anxiety and this fear. And God is here to say, you don't have to fear death because of something amazing I did. I'm not just your refuge in life. I'm your refuge in death. I am the one who's going to keep you in death. God addresses this as well. Look at verses 9 and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. See, he's saying, therefore, because you were all those things we put up on the screen, you were our refuge and our counselor and our, you alone and our source, all those things that have been mentioned in the first eight verses, because of all those things, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices because of all those things you are and what you do. And then he says in verse 10, for you will not abandon me to Sheol. Sheol is a a word for death. He's saying you will not abandon me to death. What he's saying is that God who is my refuge in life, who is all those things, my counselor, my source, my soul satisfaction, my guide, my ruler, all those things, that God, there's no way that kind of God, when I face death, will just say, there you go, you're on your own. He will not abandon me there. He will carry me through death if I make him those things. If he is my Lord and my Savior, if he is the one I'm walking with, if I've invited him in my heart, there's no way God can abandon me in death. He will hold me and keep me and transform what death is because of who he is and what he has done. You will not, let's look at what he's done. You will not abandon me in death for you will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. We're going to get to that in a second, but that's a precious promise. But what you need to know is God, through his son Jesus, takes this thing that we all fear, this thing that we don't know of called death, and he transforms it into a place of life and hope and joy everlasting joy that will go on forever and ever. One commentator said this, God will bring you body and soul through life and death to full and everlasting pleasure if he is your safest refuge, if he is your supreme treasure, if he is your sovereign Lord and your trusted counselor. God will bring you body and soul through life and death if he is your safest refuge, your supreme treasure, your sovereign Lord, and your trusted counselor. What makes this possible? How does God transform death and make it something amazingly peaceful and joyful and something we would long for versus something we fear? What happens? David wrote, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the last part of verse 10, you will not allow your faithful one to see decay. In some versions, faithful one is capitalized because David's not talking about himself there. David knew that when he died, his body would be buried and he would see decay. 
But what he saw at that bottom part of verse 10 is in his ancestry one would come named Jesus Christ. And his body would not see decay because he wouldn't be in the grave long enough to decay. He'd only be in the grave three days. Because on the third day he would rise again. Because Jesus would come and he'd live the perfect life on earth that we couldn't live. And he would go to the cross and on the cross, as we sang about, he would satisfy the wrath of God for our sin. You and I sin. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's punishment. But Jesus came and he absorbed that in our place. He paid the penalty for our sin. And if we come and we give him our life and we surrender and we repent and we invite him into our life to be our Lord and our Savior, we are saved from the penalty of sin. And he literally in that moment changes what death means for us. Death no longer means fear. Death no longer means unknown. Death no longer means all these things. Now death is everlasting joy. Pleasures forevermore. In a way that we can never imagine. Jesus through his God's God's son through what he did on the cross transforms death. Now, death turns from fear and pain to a joyful experience that is far greater than the most joyful experience we could ever have on earth. Take the most joyful, fulfilling, satisfying experience you have on earth, and heaven, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is going to be a thousand times that. You won't even be able to contain it. It won't even match It's not even a taste of what we're going to experience as far as joy and eternal pleasure in heaven. When we get to heaven and we see Jesus Christ, I'm convinced we're going to say, Jesus, I knew you were good, but I had no idea you were this good. Jesus, I knew you were awesome, but I had no idea you were this awesome. I knew you were this fulfilling, but I had no idea you were this fulfilling. And if I had known what you're really like when I lived on earth, it would radically change how I lived my life. If I really knew how good you are, how awesome you are, how impeccably joyful you are, how fulfilling you are, it would totally radically transform how I lived my life on earth. I don't have to fear death. Death is going to be the ultimate fulfillment Could that really be true? Look at the next verse, verse 11. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. At your hand are pleasures that never, ever run dry. Unlimited joy, unlimited soul satisfaction, unlimited comfort, unlimited refuge. That's all the things that the believer experiences when we go and we die. Because Jesus carries us into death, covered by his righteousness and his life because of the cross. Dennis Rainey writes, this story in his book, Stepping Up. He tells a story about the short life of his granddaughter, Molly. Molly was born with a brain aneurysm and she only lived seven days. And as difficult as those seven days were, Molly's parents and grandparents held firmly to their trust in God, confident that they would see Molly again in the age to come. 
Rainey concludes the chapter of Molly's story with this memory. He says, a number of years ago, my wife Barbara and I were vacationing in the southwest uh, country of England and stumbled upon the little town called St. Burren, a crossroad in the country where all there was was a pub, a decaying church, and a graveyard. We stopped and read a few of the gravestones. One that was barely legible commemorated a family that lived in the 1600s. Beneath that stone were the mother who gave birth to a son and died just 10 days later at the age of 24. Her son that she gave birth to lived 13 months, and the father died a few days later at age 25. The faded words on that weathered limestone grave marked something that moved us deeply and today are etched on Molly's headstone. It was this phrase, We cannot, Lord, thy purpose see, but all is well that's done with thee. We cannot, Lord, thy purpose see, but all is well that's done with thee. You hear the trust in that? You hear the the power in that, that God is a refuge? That even death itself cannot pull us out of the refuge of God? That he could be trusted no matter what comes, even if it's death, because even death he has conquered. There's nothing that can overcome. So how do we apply this to our lives? How do we give this feet and walk it out? I have three words for you. Live for eternity. Live for eternity. Guard your heart so that you're not so absorbed by all the things that we see and experience in this life. Don't let the things that you encounter in this life rob your attention and your mind and your time and all the space you have that you lose sight and forget all these things that God is and all these things that God has done. Have a vision for eternity. Look and know what's happening. Psalm 16 is way too precious for you just to leave here Sunday morning at Crossview Church. You take this with you this week. In life groups, we're talking through this. If you're not in a life group, I encourage you to read this. Look at it. Whether you're in a life group or not, pull out Psalm 16 this week and go back to it time and time again. Get a vision for eternity. When you're absorbed with everything that's going on in our world and the news and all these things that are happening, I encourage you to pause your soul and pick up Psalm 16, verse 11, and realize that, God, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy, and at your right hand are eternal pleasures. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, that's my destiny. That's what awaits me. Eternal joy eternal pleasures, eternal peace. Nothing in this world compares to what God gives those who trust him and know him. When we realize these things, we realize that God is our refuge. He's our refuge in this life and he's our refuge in death. Please pray with me. Father, what an amazing promise. Lord, as human beings living in the age we live in, where we're bombarded with so many things going on in our lives, good, bad, and indifferent, it can weaken 
this powerful message of who you are. It can distract us. It can dull our senses. God, I pray that we would be a people, especially in this year, that would know who you are, that we would experience you as our refuge in life and our refuge in death, that we would not fear what is to come with death because through your son Jesus, death has been rendered powerless and now is a doorway to life and a life experienced in a way that we can never imagine. God, I thank you that you're not just a promise in death, but that you are also a refuge in this life that you are our strength, that you are our guide, that you are our hope, our refuge, our source, our comfort, our soul satisfaction, our treasure above all else. God, I pray you'd open the eyes of our hearts that we would know you in that way. Some of us may be here saying, I never heard or thought about God like that. God, will you open our hearts to see that it takes you to know you? Would you help us to comprehend who you are? And Lord, let us never, ever, ever settle for a counterfeit God that's offered to us daily. But let us know you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.